0: Today, we're, I want to talk to you about uh, what I forecast at the end of the last lecture. I want to talk to you about uh, the importance of rhetoric. This is Everything I'm going to be saying today is going to be especially true, but not exclusively true, of Athens. Um, most Greek cities had assemblies like the Ecclesia. Um, even if they, and even if they didn't have ecclesia, they had probably um, some sort of significant council uh, like the boule um, or the Areopagos um, where, and, and hence, even, even in fairly non-democratic cities, obviously this would not necessarily be true in a, in a tyranny uh, or a, a, a very tight monarchy, but most cities, um, had po- some political venue where speaking well um, and speaking persuasively would have been would have been valuable. that's just part of politics. But um, the ecclesia and the Boule in Athens were um, exceptionally large by Greek standards. Um, they were exceptionally inclusive. Right, um, citizens of all classes um, could participate. And they were exceptionally powerful. That is a lot of political decision-making rested in those, uh, in those political venues. And then was, I mean, maybe not unique to them, but quite um, uh, exceptional, which is the jury system. Um, where, because on the jury system, um, citizens were being paid to sit um, and therefore uh, the juries were like more inclusive than any other um, uh, venue in Athens. And every citizen was empowered to prosecute uh, public suits, right? Um, the, the Greek here is hobulomenos, uh, that is whoever wishes. Whoever wishes to participate, uh, whoever wishes to bring a suit can. And that, and, and these public suits that anyone could bring included a very specific type of suit, which is um, kind of crazy. On the one hand, it involved accusa- any accusations of corruption against public officials, so office holders, uh, could be brought by anyone. Um, so, you know, if Uh, you know, in a modern kind of thought that, uh, that um, uh, Trudeau was, uh, had done something corrupt, you could uh, bring a suit against him in court um, and he would have to answer your suit before a jury of, I mean, in the case of a big public corruption suit like that, it probably would have been a jury of uh, 1,001 or 1,501 um, uh, citizens. And there was another very special kind of suit. If a law was introduced in the Ecclesia and uh, it passed, but someone felt that the law was a bad law or conflicted with a prior uh, law um, that had controlling precedent, then what you could do is you could bring a suit before the court um, accusing the person who introduced the law of introducing an illegal measure and um, that um, conditions um, you could actually win a a, a suit against the law and have the law overturned in that way. And that sort of thing happened quite a bit. Um, And it happened more and more as the, the fifth century went on, such that the courts became a de facto sort of second house of the legislature um, that had a, a sort of veto over things that were passed. That means that in Athens, especially, a public figure, any Athenian citizen who dared, who dared because being in the limelight was a very risky proposition. You opened yourself up to public scrutiny and you opened yourself up to public prosecution. Uh, any who decided they didn't like you could decide they wanted to try and find a way to prosecute for the courts. Being able to speak persuasively was a survival skill and because Athens was a hegemonic power in Greece, being able to speak well before Athenians was an important skill all over Hellas. And that means that there was both a demand for and a supply of teachers of rhetoric who came from all over um, to teach uh, wealthy Athenians how to speak well. And that brings us... To Gorgias. Gorgias was not um, Athenian. He was a foreigner. He was from the city of Leontini in Sicily. He was uh, an ambassador uh, to Athens in the year 427 BCE, which coincidentally is the year that Plato was born. Um, and he went to. Athens Athens, uh, as an ambassador, seeking Athenian protection against Syracuse, who was, which was the largest city on uh, Sicily. Um, this will have repercussions down the line, which we'll talk about later, uh, because uh, Athens ended up sending a large naval expedition to uh, Sicily uh, to attack Syracuse, and this was a big disaster. Um, but Although he came as a, an ambassador, Gorgias ended up staying in Athens uh, and teaching rhetoric um, to uh, Athenians. Uh, his ma- manner of speaking was, caused quite a sensation. Um, and he has been called um, the, um, he's been called the father of sophistry, um, which to us sophistry means uh in is just a negative word but it originated as a as a, a word of of commendation a, a sophist is a wise person uh, an expert someone who teaches for money um that's literally what a sophist was so um, that's that's the name. So it's Gorgias that this this dialogue of Plato is named after, um, and obviously Gorgias is one of the characters um, who Socrates um, talks with. The other two characters in the dialogue, the other the two, the two who Socrates talks to, are students of Gorgias. Uh, one, Paulus who is um, a student a student of Gorgias, also from Sicily. Um, he's only known from Plato's dialogues. And the other one is Callicles, um, who is portrayed as a younger student of Gorgias. Um, and he may be fictional. He's also not attested outside of uh, Plato's dialogues. I'm going to look at... Uh, Gorgias's rhetoric and Gorgias's teaching, in particular, uh, and then I'm going to um, return to the theme of the place of rhetoric in Athens um, and the, the political of rhetoric. I'll for some more um, general. Uh, before we turn to the Q&A. So, um, as well as looking at Plato's dialogue, the Gorgias, we also looked at a speech of Gorgias' um, called the Encomium to Helen. This speech was probably a sort of advertisement that Gorgias would give for his rhetorical um. Teachings, He would give the speech as a sort of set piece, um, an advertisement that said, look how beautifully I speak, I can teach you to speak just as persuasively. Um, and the argument of the encomium to Helen is that Helen is blamed unjustly for going with Paris to Troy and abandoning her husband Menelaus and thereby sparking the Trojan War. Gorgias argues in her defense that she is blameless. She was compelled and he argues by alternative. So she was compelled to go either by the gods, who can resist the gods, or by Paris's physical force, and who can blame her for that, or by love, which is either a god itself, or a form of illness or madness, for which one cannot be blamed, or, and this is the real selling point in the speech, or she was compelled to go by speech, by logos. In his speech, Gorgias uh, calls speech <laughs> a powerful master, which achieves the most godlike actions with the smallest and least evident body. It can stop fear, relieve pain, create joy, and um, and increase pity. And then a little later in the speech, he says, a speech persuaded a soul that was persuaded and forced it to be persuaded by what was said and to consent to what was done. The persuader then is the wrongdoer because he compelled her, while she who was persuaded is wrongly blamed because she was compelled by the speech. This vision of speech as a powerful, compelling force is um, obviously carried over into Plato's portrayal of Gorgias uh, in the dialogue. So in the dialogue, uh, in his discussion with Socrates, Gorgias says, and I'm looking here at 453a, um, so in or just before 453a, this is in general in the um, in Plato's dialogues, there are margin numbers that will give you more precise citations um, than page numbers, and the margin numbers are standard across different editions of Plato, um, and so I encourage you to use them. So at 453a, Socrates sums up what Gorgias says by saying that rhetoric is a manufacturer of persuasion. What Gorgias has actually said, what he is summing up there, uh, Gorgias says, um, well, he had said that rhetoric produced the greatest good for men, and Gorgias uh, characterizes that this way. He says, that which in very truth is the greatest good, Socrates, is at once cause of freedom for men themselves and of rule over others in their cities. And he says, I say it is the ability to persuade by speeches, judges in a law court, senators in the council chamber, assemblymen in the assembly, or in political gatherings of any kind whatsoever. Indeed, by virtue of this power, you will have the doctor as your slave and the trainer to And this businessman of yours will make his next appearance earning money, not for himself, but someone else for you, because of your ability to speak and persuade the multitude. This is a, um, I, I mean, there are two things going on here. On the one hand, um, Obviously, I want to underline again. This is a sales pitch. Uh, Gorgias is talking up his own wares. Right? He sells education and rhetoric, um, and he is telling potential employee or potential buyers of his wares um, that he has the best wares. He he will give them so much power, um, but. In addition to that, in addition to it being a sales pitch, I also want to point out that it's an appeal to the warrior ethos of the ancient world, but one that adapts itself to a new political technology. The constitution and laws of the city as a sort of um, peace treaty among warriors is something I've pointed to several times. Um, And the peace treaty looks sort of like this. We, that is the warriors, will be free. That is, no one will rule over us. We will individually rule over our women, our slaves, our children, and we will collectively rule over other cities or subject populations. As I've said um, in the past couple lectures, changes in socioeconomic uh, conditions and in military and political technology changed the terms of this peace treaty, right? If initially the city was a um, compact among wealthy knights, um, at some point the knights had to admit that we knights can no longer be free and rule over others unless we allow the increasingly effective infantry uh, to share in rule. But then this requires different laws and different norms, right? Policy in a city is no longer decided by a few acknowledged heads of clans, but requires persuading a larger body of men, uh, men who are powerful as a mass, and that requires a sort of mass politics. And that dynamic is then, uh, or that reality, then becomes intensified by the rise of naval power, right? Um, The real power now in a naval city is not one or a few well-armed men who are skilled in combat, but power might rest with one or a few well-spoken men who are skilled at persuasion. And that leads to a curious debate being carried out among the well-off, right? Among the rich and powerful. They're the ones who left records, right? On the one hand, there are oligarchic elites who are backward looking, And pro-Sparta. They prefer the old world in which the council of a few elder men could win the fealty of the better sorts. And that was all that was needed. Against this faction, there was another faction of democratic, forward-looking, pro-Athens folks, also wealthy who embraced the potential of wielding the new mass power of the Assembly, the courts, and the Navy, go back to a more exclusive form of political rule, or whether to try to um, ride the demos, right, to still have a a form of uh, elite politics, but One And a form of elite politics that takes granted the place of the multitude of poor citizens in decision-making and tries to use speech rather than force of arms to control the um, poor. Plato represents Socrates as attacking this new paradigm of uh, using rhetoric and sophistry to train a new ruling class. Where Gorgias and his students um, represent rhetoric as an art of Controlling people. Socrates represents rhetoric as a knack for flattery and for gratification. So rather than being in control, the rhetorician is actually akin to a pastry chef who makes. Um, sweet things to satisfy the demands of the masses. Therefore, rather than being more powerful than the masses, Socrates claims rhetoricians are slaves to the whims of the masses that they seek to please. That's how they are going? That's that's the the measure of their success is acclaim, uh, cheering, etc. Whereas Socrates wants to contrast to rhetoric, his own um, art of speaking, um, which is a form of discussion that cannot be carried out. Um, in front of a crowd, Um, he says at 474b, right? And therefore seems to be powerless um, before the court or before the assembly. But Socrates insists, on the contrary, right, that it's the rhetorician who's actually powerless because his ability to speak persuasively is not good for him, that is, harm to his soul by preventing him from being correct. So, this is, this is just a taste of the, the sort of debate that is going to be established um, and that we're going to follow out in much greater detail um, in Republic which we start reading for Thursday. Um, For the lecture on Thursday, I will start by looking at some of the claims that Callicles makes at the end of the Gorgias and and relating those two claims in Book One of The Republic. Um, And what I want to drive home is... Uh, Two things. So first, what I said already that I've been trying to make here is that the the argument between the old guard conservatives like the old oligarch and the new guard um, democratic elites like Pericles um, and Gorgias is not simply a debate over which type of regime is better um, oligarchy or democracy. Or at least it's not simply an argument. It's not an argument about whether to be um, inegalitarian or egalitarian. It's not an argument about um, whether to, whether the common poor Athenian is worth as much as the wealthy um, aristocratic landowner. Both sides in the debate, I'm suggesting, about regime type agree that they, the wealthy uh, and well-educated, are better than the poor Uh, and ignorant uh, farmers of Athens. What they disagree about is how to exercise rule over those poor um, and ignorant farmers. (laughs) Both sides agree that the wealthy should be on top. They disagree about how they should stay on top. The proponents of rhetoric think that education itself, education in speaking well, um, is going to give them a better way of staying on top than um, the old method of... Uh, you know, uh, excluding the poor from any participation. They think that they can manipulate and use the poor to their own ends. So that's the argument I've been making. Socrates and Plato, um, and we'll talk more about the relationship between the two of them, come in to this debate and articulate a Third position, right? Socrates um, is portrayed by Plato as a critic of the rhetoricians. But he is not thereby portrayed necessarily as a friend of the old oligarchs. He his criticism of Um, rhetoric is going to be um, in the service of a different political ideal. And that's what I hope we will be able to um, tease out over the next few um, sessions. So there we go.